Hey everyone, and welcome to Risky Business. My name's Patrick Gray. This week's show is brought to you by Red Canary, the MDR company, the Managed Detection and Response Company, and uh, Red Canary's co-founder and CTO, Chris Rothy, is this week's sponsor guest. And we're talking to him about how MDR companies are handling monitoring cloud-based environments. And yeah, it's gotten a lot easier for them to actually do valuable work on cloud monitoring and response. Uh, So that's an interesting chat about how all that's evolved and it's coming up later. Uh, But first up, it's time for a check of the week's security news with CyberCX's Adam Boileau. And Adam, I don't know if I've had a stroke or, you know, (laughs) or if this is actually what's happening. But like more Fortinet O'Day seems to be (laughs) in the news cycle this week. And as I say... Yeah, I I do get that feeling like I've had a stroke and I'm like just stuck in some sort of weird time loop or something. I don't know. Yeah, it's Fortinet Groundhog Day every day here yeah. at Skippers HQ, that's for sure. <laughs> I, I did see uh, someone on the internet having photoshopped all of the Fortinet CVEs into the This, this is, is Fine Dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's that's definitely what uh, what it's been like. Uh, so Fortinet have released a patch for FortiOS, the underlying operating system, on a bunch of its products um, that address a bunch of bugs. But in particular, one of these is pre-authentication remote code execution in their SSL VPN product. I mean, great. I mean... (laughs) I mean, it kind of doesn't really get worse than that for a security product that's designed to be on the edge of your network. Mm. Um, And even better, the bug appears to have been discovered in the wild prior to uh, some French researchers who reported the Fortinet and had been being used in the wild. Yeah. Um, So... That's not great. Um, not great at all. Uh, Fortinet did patch it quietly in their most recent round of updates. But, you know, the fact that we've seen it exploited in the wild prior to the bug being reported to the vendor is unfortunately, you know, that's that's a pretty grim meat hook future right there. Yeah. Having to deal with, deal with that in your security perimeter control devices. I mean, there was some talk that maybe this was the O-Day that the Vault Typhoon... Uh, hackers were using, but no, no, no that was a different no, O-Day. Different one, different one, yep. Yeah, no, this was um, uh, actually a heap-based buffer overflow parsing the login message, so the posts to the login part of the web web app uh, that runs the SSL VPN, parses some parameters unsafely, typecasts them into a variable that's the wrong size, leading to a missed length check, leading to heap memory corrupt. I mean, how so, have they not found this, right? Like... I mean, it does kind of feel like the sort of thing that fuzzing would have picked up. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, mm, yeah. You I know, mean, and when you look at when you look at how we got here, right? Like in the years leading up to the pandemic, the push towards uh, identity aware proxies and you know zero trust everything and like moving away from this type of equipment was was happening. I mean, it was gradual, but it was happening. And then COVID nineteen hit. Everybody had to go work from home and there really was only one option to get going quickly, which was to deploy VPN concentrators with enterprise features. And because the industry had been so geared towards creating the next generation of like remote access tech, the only stuff available on the market is all this old crap that is not QA'd properly. And every time you pick it up and shake it, CVEs fall out, right? So, and this was such a shot in the arm to companies like Pulse and Fortinet and whatever. They sold so many VPNs through the pandemic. And this is, this is a hangover, right? COVID-19 extended the life of these companies and these technologies. And that's unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's also fair to say that, you know, VPNs are relatively old tech, as you say. Like, this is a thing we've been doing in the security appliance and, you know, industry for a long time. 
And there was never really much pressure that these things worked. Like they work in the sense they transport network traffic from A to B, but there was never any reason they needed to be secure because there were so many other ways to hack things, right? Mm. There was, you know, phishing and, you know, PHP web apps and SQL injection. And so VPNs never really needed to work. And now they do because we've tied up a bunch of other bug classes, the pandemic happened, and these are, you know, vendors in many cases with pretty old tech. And... Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, a lot of history coming home to roost all at once uh, and bad news for the customers. So you and I have been having this discussion over the last couple of days about, well, when we talk about this, you know, in in this week's show, you know, what are we going to tell people? Because it's not like the file transfer appliances. Like you and I both said, well, we don't think people should use them. They, you know, they need to decommission them. Doesn't matter which brand it is because they're all pretty rotten. You know, try to move towards some sort of SaaS thing. Just work it out. It'll be painful, but you can do it. You can't give the same advice. You can't tell an enterprise, hey, just turn off your VPN because there's still a lot of people working from home. Uh, You know, some only a few days a week or whatever. But the you know the productivity hit uh, uh, from just disconnecting your VPN, it's it's terminal. Like it's a non-starter as an idea. So then we were talking, well, how do you mitigate the impact of having to use a border device that you know, and it's not just Fortinet, they all suck, right? How do you mitigate the impact of, of having a domain-joined network appliance at the edge of your network that is going to get O'Day in it? And there's no good answer to that. It's a really, it is a really hard problem, yes. But these things handle end-user credentials and admin credentials. A lot of people use VPNs for service providers to get into the network to deliver service. So there's privileged accounts uh, being handled through there. And, you know, even with you know all sorts of good quality technical controls like you're still handing over user credentials and user access to this device to then either authenticate onwards to the main controller or whatever other mechanism um they you know they are a single point of failure and they're on Mm. the edge of the network in in a privileged role and advice is really hard to give because as you say all of the vendors have had bugs they're all you know, old, long-in-the-tooth products that don't have the kind of security segregation, defense in depth or whatever else that you would imagine that they do. You know, we've seen conversations about, you know, old architectures that don't support modern um, exploit mitigations. You know, yeah. it's like stack, you know. I mean, it just, it just boggles my mind that you can have this much attack surface exposed pre-auth in a product like this. Like, I would have thought that would be... But then again, this bug is actually in the auth, right? So yes, I yes, mean, in the login just, processing. So. It hurts my brain. Yeah. Uh, absolutely hurts my brain. But, you know, I think, I think ultimately where I arrived in discussions I had with other people, though, like talking to the Airlock uh, team yesterday, we were recording a soapbox and we were talking about uh, slightly different context, but we're talking about living off the land when you do have an authenticated, uh, you know, attacker, which is what you wind up with in this sort of scenario, which is someone coming in off based on uh, popping the the, the VPN uh, uh, appliance. You know, they said, well, really, you know, often if you know what sort of tradecraft you're trying to stop, like you can use technologies like theirs to stop this stuff, right? So by only allowing certain things to, you know, Windows utilities and whatever to execute in certain contexts. But ultimately, if you want to have a higher degree of confidence that you're going to catch an attacker here, you need some sort of managed detection and response. I also spoke about this with uh, Dmitry Alperovich, you know, co-founder of CrowdStrike, and a lot of people would have guessed by now he's a pretty good friend of mine. Uh, So we, we talked about that as well. And yeah, I mean, that was his answer as well, which is which is MDR. Now that's a pretty expensive, big solution. Like I, I, I honestly think people should be doing MDR. That's not just because Red Canary is a sponsor this week. Like MDR is becoming an increasingly important uh, part of the mix. 
you know, so I think that's something people should be doing. But when your response to, well, we want to use a VPN and the corresponding control is comprehensive managed detection and response, <laughs> you know, that's a big mitigation if you want to introduce these in, in, into your network. The only mitigation is to do everything else right and spend a lot of money, yeah, which is unfortunate, yes. you know? Yeah, yeah, and, and it really is. And, you know, having enterprise-wide good quality MDR is going to solve a whole bunch of problems, yeah. not just that your VPN is bad, like everything else, you know, your PAM product and your password vaults and whatever else like that are also bad. Like, it'll address the same problem with other things, which is great, but it is a very big and expensive hammer to have to throw at, you know, what used to be, what used to feel like a pretty simple problem to solve. Like VPNs are a mature tech. Yeah, like it, it used to be to something be... that you didn't have to think about because what could go wrong yes. with a VPN? Apparently, though, quite a lot. It turns out quite a lot because <laughs> no one's ever really looked at them that hard because we didn't need to. And, you know, when we were dealing with, you know, trad VPNs, IPsec, site to site, you know, there's a that code is really unpleasant to read. I mean, IPsec is just horrible to work with and it has remained relatively bug-free implementations of IPsec because everyone just goes, oh, I don't want to have to read that. Um, so it's kind of security through just being gross, whereas web-based VPN, SSL VPNs, like we can use web bug tech to mm. go find the bugs in them. Um, but, I mean, you even look at, um, like someone, when we were talking earlier on in the week about this, uh, I said, well, maybe Microsoft Direct Access. Like that's Microsoft's bog standard remote access product for enterprise Windows networks on modern Windows. And it's like uh, IPv6 inside IPsec inside HTTP. <laughs> so that you can get it across people's network without having to deal with IPsec problems. And, like, it's still gross, yeah. but it's like there's a degree of, you know, Microsoft-level gross is a different category than we wrote our firewall in PHP 25 years yeah, ago. Yeah, they'll just have some suicidal it. configuration option that people think they need to tick and gets them owned, right? Like, that's how Microsoft gets you. Yeah, and, and to be honest, also, the, the IPv6 part, I think, is going to get them owned. Like, I've spent some time tinkering direct access, and there's definitely bugs to be found in the way that IPv6 works. Yeah. But I don't think you're going to find pre-auth remote Yeah, 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 yeah. It's not like four to, four to fail. Uh, it's not four to fail, bad, right? yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So four to bad. I think that needs to be a new term <laughs> of art. Um, but it's not just them, right? Because I thought, look, wouldn't it be great if we could come out on Wednesday and say, here, use this modern you know, one, but if you look at it, even the, the hip and groovy VPN stuff that like InfoSec people like, all you need to do is Google any product name with space CVE and then just go, you know, hit the page and have a scroll and you'll be finding like these, let's be honest, anything over a seven is a 10. You know, in the hands of anyone who knows what they're doing. Yeah. And, you yeah, know, they're, I mean, they're regular, regular bugs in all of this stuff. There's just no good VPN solution at the moment. It's yeah. crazy. I mean, you know, the typical answers trotted out are going to be non-enterprisey ones like OpenVPN, which is a nasty mm, mess of very no. old No, and this is what corporates. I mean. Like, go, go Google OpenVPN CVE. Yeah, I mean, there certainly has been some, and their crypto code is old and creaky. Like, I wouldn't yeah. feel great about that. I mean, and then there's modern things like WireGuard, which, like, the WireGuard gubbins is pretty good, like, attack surface-wise is pretty good. But then you look at something like TailScale, which makes WireGuard usable, and, you know, Jamie from my work uh, and her buddy Emily, like, they destroyed it, <laughs> like, with remote code exec and, and so on and so forth. So even the new ones, you know, are... Uh, you know, probably not for bad, but yeah, you know, it's very hard to find a VPN solution that you would feel happy putting on the internet. And as you say, it's not just Fortinet. We've seen 
you know, Citrix bugs, we've seen Pulse, yeah. we've seen Juniper, we've seen But that that's Palo what I'm Alto, getting at. This isn't seen... this isn't just a Fortinet problem. Yeah. This is a this is a there is no simple way to fix this. And even if you do go the MDR route, okay, an attacker pops your Fortinet, they grab the service account, they go in, they start doing some living off the land, but they do a couple of funny, suspicious executions. Your MDR provider snaps them, they isolate those machines, they evict the attacker. Then what? Then what do you do? I mean, maybe you got a patch for that particular bug. What do you do the next every time there's a CVE, you're gonna roll like MDR response and just, I don't know, what do you do if it's O'Day and you're waiting for the patch? Do you just shut down your VPN, shut down your company? Like I, I this it's been a while since I've seen a category of like day-to-day CISO problem that's this bad. Yeah, no, absolutely agree. And like the range of security products that are on the edge of people's networks and the functionality that they have, like, do make it hard to contain them. Like, I'm yeah. thinking of a, I reviewed a PAM product uh, that was for remote access, and I got like straight up remote code exactly on the underlying device. It's already got the file service, like the Windows file service, mounted so that it can share files and do yeah, stuff. Yeah, through a it's web interface, the, right? So you just like select interface. all and download. I'm guessing. Yeah, I mean, pretty much, right? So <laughs> yeah. you know, trying to bolt detection response into something that has already got those, like that, it's not anomalous or it's not unusual well, for no, it to be no, doing I those mean, things. I, but yeah, I mean, I, I understand that in the case where you're directly mounting the file system to the edge device, right? Like, yeah. okay, fine. <laughs> um, but I'm guessing that's a configuration option that you know one might disable but i guess then again yeah. uh someone could probably just turn it on <laughs> you just turn it, well, and you've got the necessary network access anyway to just yeah. do it you know without independent of what the device is doing and like that particular thing was a pan product and it also did http proxying so that you connect onwards to other things in your network mm. and it's just like what's uh, what normal use of those devices look like is already terrifying yeah. <laughs> and then trying to, to find the genuinely you know bad people in there doing it like it's it's really hard but I don't know that there is a better option than the thing you would do for an attacker getting into your network through any mechanism, which is detection and response. Well, I, th- I think though, for some people, like they're a little bit scared to do the 0365 uplift, and that would probably be enough for a lot of organizations that are otherwise using these types of VPN appliances. Like, you know, actually churning users over onto Microsoft or Google Cloud stuff and using OneDrive instead of network shares. Um, you know, it's not as hard as it used to be. Like you can do those sorts of migrations pretty easily. So that's another potential solution here. But I have a feeling that for a lot of companies out there, if they could have done that already, they would have. But that said, I think it's a matter of, you know, adding up the cost versus the benefit. And I think those calculations, like as we've just seen, like how bad it's got, um, those calculations would have changed. So hopefully this is enough for some people to say, okay, well, we're going to do our, you know, big cloud service SaaS uplift now. I think this is a good time to do it. But yeah, in other orgs that are very big and, you know, have old systems and stuff, you just can't do that quickly. So anyway, sorry, we, you know, I really hoped that we could do this week's show and say, all you need to do is X. And there's just no simple solution here. It's basically like, if you want to use one of these things, you are introducing a level of risk to your environment that is going to cost you a lot of money to mitigate. That's the yeah, and, that's the takeaway. Yeah, and we as you know, as an overall industry, people providing edge devices that do security critical stuff have never had to bear the full cost of of what their products do in terms of the risk of the response of all the things that can go wrong and, you know, pressure on your vendors when you're making purchasing choices, etc. is a good long-term plan, but you know, this was a a problem that has been going on for a long time because there was no market pressure on vendors 
to produce well, I, I a don't think that it's well. just that. I think it's also that the investment in new technology, the R and D, was going into stuff like identity aware proxies and stuff because yeah. people realised that VPNs were kind of a mature like techno- legacy technology a bit. So I, do, I don't think it's just about market pressure. I just think that people were focused elsewhere. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, yes. Let's keep talking about ancient appliances that are getting everyone owned. <laughs> and um, Barracuda. Ooh, uh, this Barracuda. was you know, all over everywhere. I think this happened just after we finished uh, last week's show. But uh, Barracuda have urged people who were uh, whose Barracuda appliances were compromised by some APT actor out there using an O-Day. Uh, they've told people via a pop-up in like their management interface, which I do wonder how many people actually log into the things. Um, but they've warned people <laughs> that like if you have been compromised uh, and they've, they're doing compromised detection, um, you need to throw away the device and get another one, right? So they're saying it can't be restored to a state of integrity. You need to just bin it, throw it into a log chipper, get rid of it and uh, get another one. Which, look, a lot of people are like, ha, 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 Barracuda, what losers? But good on them for actually giving that advice, you know, good on them for saying, doing the appropriate thing, even if it's radical and makes them look bad. I, I just think, you know, I think that this is good. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, the, the bug itself is really dumb. Uh, and so in that respect, bad Barracuda. Uh, but it's, it's a big move for a vendor to come out and say, wood ship your appliance and we'll give you a new one. Like that's yeah. a big call. And I'm glad that they are doing it. And I'm, I guess I'm a little surprised that people are surprised by that. I mean, we've seen uh, hardware level implants as a you know, long-term persistence mechanism you know, for quite a while, especially in the, in the spook world. I was reminded of um, the NSA's Ant catalog that got leaked f- 10 years ago, more than that maybe. About 10 years ago, yeah. About 10 years ago that contained details of a bunch of their toys and, and this, you know, BIOS backdoors for Juniper firewalls in there, for example, mm. uh, so that you can survive the device being reinstalled or, or whatever else. Uh, so, you know, this has been happening for a long time in the spook worlds. Uh, so we should have more vendors giving this kind of answer. And I'm glad that Barracuda has decided to do that because it, you know, begins to normalize what we have needed to be doing for quite a long time. Mm. Um, so good, well, it's a reminder too, and, and, and maybe we should point this out as it relates to Fortinet as well, which is that the people who are there now are often paying for the sins of people who resigned 10 years ago, right? So yeah. there <laughs> yes, are actually exactly. competent people at these organizations, mm-hmm. but there's only so much they can do with such a legacy of fail, right? Yes. Yeah. And then like the mid, like that, that kind of period of 2000s through to 2010, where a lot of this stuff had, has its genesis, we built a lot of terrible crap as an industry. Yeah. And I mean, things like Barracudas and, and whatever else. Well, like, I'm pretty sure they offer like a SaaS cloudy one as well, right? But, you know, quite yeah. often people just want the appliance. I think that's a, yeah, that's some actionable advice we can give. Don't buy any more bloody appliances and get rid yeah, of the yeah. ones you have, you know, just generally. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if it comes in a custom rack mount case, don't buy it. Yeah, no more blinky light boxes, people. <laughs> no more blinky light We've boxes. The, the bug itself, though, if I can just dwell for a moment on it, is a beautiful thing. Uh, it's a Perl command injection in the file names of files inside a tar attachment of an email. Yeah, I mean, that's classic stuff, right? Like that it's, is, it's, it's beautiful. Like, yeah. I love it. Actually, um, you know, I, I, and I've mentioned... Uh, uh, a couple of times that I was staying with a friend in Melbourne. Um, so I mentioned that in the in this week's sponsor interview, but uh, he pointed out to me that he found some some very similar bugs in Barracuda back in 05. So, <laughs> believe yeah. it too. I would believe it. Yeah, Probably so there's a CVE. Software since then. Yeah, there's a CVE that he found from 05 and he looked it up and showed me. And I'm like, oh yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's quite funny. Yeah. So the, these were, uh, Barracuda says they have seen them being exploited back into mid-2022. So, like, if you have a Barracuda in your mail path, probably having a bad day, especially if you're the sort of people who would be targets of intelligence services or state actors or whatever else. Yeah. You might use good bugs on hardware backdoors. Well, and the file transfer apocalypse, speaking of blinky light boxes, the file transfer appliance apocalypse is uh, still ongoing. I think MoveIt has announced another vuln. Um, I mean, did they find this one themselves or was just this, is this another O'Day ripping through the wild? Uh, they said, uh, I think Huntress had been reviewing it after uh, yeah, the yeah, initial yeah, bugs yeah, yeah, and yeah. then Huntress found this extra one. Um, so, yeah, another another bug um, and presumably uh, they're going to patch that. I have patched that as well. But, yeah, if you have a file transfer appliance uh, like that, I mean, it's probably a bit late for the second patch at this point. Yeah, but, I mean, think of the next vendor. that yes. I mean, because it's clear what Klopp is doing here is they're yes. actually targeting this as a product category, right? So they're going after... Uh, you know, they'll just go down to the next one on the vendor list, try to get a copy of it, poke it, product for vulnerabilities, and then they do their harvest season, right? I mean, yeah, they've taken yeah. down with the Move It stuff, uh, BBC, British Airways, Aer Lingus, like it's just <laughs> the Minnesota schools. Like, and, and, and I think their harvest, um, oh yeah, they got Ofcom as well. Yeah, that was Move It. Yeah. Um, that's the regulator in the UK. Uh, and I think There's some now, government in Nova, Nova Scotia as well. Yeah, like just... Heaps. And we spoke last week about how they were in the harvest phase, right? And they would take the data to market uh, at yes. some point when they're ready. <laughs> Looks like that's happened now. They've sent out extortion notices to hundreds of victims, right? So harvest season is done. Time to sell at market. Uh, yes. And that's what Flop is. <laughs> exactly. And like, if you go look at the list of other products in this category like our file transfer services there's some pretty good looking targets in there like i yeah I you like mentioned I that last week and it's yeah and it's true it's true and they're just going to keep going which is why yeah. you know months ago we were like yeah maybe you don't want to use these things i mean i think i remembered some of the more specific mitigation advice that that person on mastodon said one of them was like make sure everything's ephemeral there i'm like i mean you know that would That's probably advice, yeah. yeah that would probably help you a little bit but you know you could still get an attacker on the box who just copies everything as it comes in and leaves right so yeah yeah i mean you can contain the blast radius a bit by stopping it from having 20 years of you know yeah. legal data and or whatever else right you can limit that but yeah also especially if the person who lands on the system is willing to spend some time yeah. moving laterally or you know investigating beyond just loot and leave Loot and leave. I like it. Is that where, Where's that term of art from? Well, I, I don't know. Was that all, off the cuff? That was off the cuff. Hey, I like it. I like it. Uh, and we're still finding out about uh, uh, people who've been owned by uh, the previous one. What is it? The Fortra. Was it Go Anywhere yeah, the, MFT? Yeah. Yeah, the Fortra one. So we got a story here from TechCrunch about uh, some org, which is it. Yeah, there's been like some huge US medical data breach. You know, I, all this stuff, you know, eventually it starts bleeding out in like it SEC does. filings and whatever and notices to regulators. So we're still finding out about the last round, basically. Yeah. And, and you know, I guess this will have a long tail. Like we're still, you know, there's people who are owned by the Excellion breaches, you know, that are still dealing with responses to that even yeah. now. So, yeah, it's be a long tail. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's move on to some other news. Well, it is kind of related when you think about it because this is still about blinky light boxes. Uh, CISA has uh, issued a binding operational directive to uh, uh, US federal government you know, agencies and departments that they need to get management interfaces for networking equipment and various network attached you know, uh, bits of equipment off the internet, which... 
you know, I mean, you said to me earlier when we were talking about this, geez, you know, can't believe it took till 2023. But that's how it be, my friend. And, uh, you know, it's good to see them doing this. Better late than never. That's what uh, that's what I think. So they've, they've told them they've got to do it. And I think what they're going to do next is they're doing some scanning of like federal government IP space to like find these things. And then they're going to notify uh, various agencies and then they have 14 days to fix it or else. But it is a binding directive. And if you're going to target a category of like, you know, I hate to use the term, but low-hanging fruit. Uh, if you're going to target a category, this is a pretty good category to target. It solves what I call the F5 problem, where yeah. F5 <laughs> gear is actually quite useful and no one really makes anything like it. But if you put its management interface on the internet, you may as well just shoot yourself in the face. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly, yes. Yeah, and the idea that management interfaces should only be accessed from a dedicated management zone in your environment or with other controls around them. And like that seems like pretty old wisdom. Yeah, but that's like you say, the best advice of 2003, right? Yes, exactly. But you know, the reality, as you say, is that a lot of people uh, absolutely do still have management interfaces on the internet. And in some cases, you know, the management interface is the same as the end user facing interface. And that's a concerning kind of category of well, things. Yeah. Where they're. You know, I'm guessing they're not a lot of these separate. VPN appliances, you just log yes. in with sufficient privilege and there's the management interface, right? Yeah. So. Uh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it is, it is a hard problem despite being an old problem. But, but there is, there is every... plenty of stuff. There's plenty of stuff out there that does have dedicated management interfaces yes. still, right? Yeah, plenty of stuff does. And which for is good. this reason, for God's sakes, like even the vendors of fail. Like, give you a management interface so you can segregate it, and people don't do it. I mean, this is, is true, yes, but plenty of them have just bodged it into the same web server um, rather than segregated them out for yeah. this exact reason so that we can have some, you know, some se actual segregation of a management zone. But that's, it's very old think management zone. Everyone wants to be on the internet, zero trust, you know, so on, which is fine if you do the zero trust part, but most people just get to the let's put it on the internet part. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> forget about the rest and the multi-factor or whatever else. So Now let's contrast the problems happening in blinky light box world this week, Adam, with the problems being experienced by Azure users, <laughs> uh, where it looks like they actually, look, I got to give credit where credit's due. Anonymous Sudan, which is likely a front, uh, as we know, for, for Russians, uh, said that they'd managed to take down Azure via a DDoS attack. And it looks like they actually did, right? And and Microsoft were able to bounce back, but th they took down a bunch of services. Like Microsoft's still investigating or whatever and described a traffic anomaly, blah, blah, blah. But it looks like, if you had to guess at this stage, it looks like an anonymous Sudan-led DDoS attack actually managed to cause some drama, temporary drama uh, for Microsoft. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. This is definitely in the you got to hand it to them category. Uh, and there's, you know, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of attack service in Azure and there's a lot of complexity and a lot of good options for DDoSing uh, Microsoft there. But yeah, I mean, solid work. Uh, Microsoft was saying that um, I think uh, Entra Admin and Microsoft Intune um, yeah. were throwing up error messages. And I mean, being able to, being able to, to brick Intune for a couple of hours, I mean, that's, uh, yeah. you know. Yeah, it's legit. I mean, there's some of the problems with, with mail and SharePoint and Teams and stuff. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's good work. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, no, we don't got to hand it to Sorry, we don't, we don't got to hand it to we don't, we don't got to hand it to Russians pretending to be Muslims, pretending to be activists. Oh. Pretending to be. <laughs> what, what a world. What a world. What a world. Uh, so, what else have we got here? Oh, now, in the same vein, uh, now these guys, we got to hand it to them. <laughs> some Ukrainian uh, activists, quote unquote, uh, I think they're called the Cyber Anarchy Squad. I don't know if they're Ukrainian, uh, but they were. They are certainly supporting uh, Ukraine. They owned some 
Russian telco and like bricked a lot of their gear. And it turns out this Russian telco actually provides connectivity to the Russian central bank where all of the banks have to report transactions. So this caused major drama uh, in <laughs> Russia. They were actually able to recover reasonably quickly though, but this was, this was yeah, I mean, it, it was in the Russian press uh, and uh, Ukrainian press too, obviously, but yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty bad. I'm actually surprised they bounced back so Me quickly because yeah. like that looked like a pretty serious wrecking, you know, going and bricking network devices and routers and switches and whatever else like that seems like it was going to be a, you know, roll truck to the data center and start ripping gear out or at the very least, you know, get your console cable out and start working. Um, but no, they seem to bounce back pretty quick, but there's a bunch of email and data that's been stolen from it as well. And, you but know, they were only the, down, they were only down for 32 hours. And I had the same reaction as you, which is like, yeah, people rolled in there, bricked a bunch of their routers and they got back up and running in 32 hours. I mean, that means they did eviction and restoration in 32 hours. That's, uh, you know, and I, I think good, that's what the, the whole Russia-Ukraine conflict has shown us, right? Is that organizations these days can be quite resilient in the face of these types of attacks, which is surprising. It is, but I guess, you know, also like the process of, of comprehensively destroying an organization such that it makes recovery really difficult, like it's actually quite involved because uh, we've kind of been through some of these scenarios in our work. Hmm. Um, and, like war, you know, war thought, gaming them out sort of thing for clients. Yeah, war game yeah. or getting in, like when you're trying to explain what's the impact of the, of the compromise that we have carried out in this particular exercise, what could we do? And thinking through, okay, well now we can turn off your back ops, turn off your data center, turn off the backup data center, turn off the, VMware such that you can't turn the VMware on because the button to turn the VMware on is inside the VMware. Like that sort of bootstrap analysis of how you deal with a cold start or, a, you know, that kind of thing. Like that's not a fast or particularly easy process. It requires quite a lot of thought and quite a lot of understanding. So bricking a whole bank comprehensively is not a thing you're going to do fast. And doing it under pressure if you, you know, if they've snapped you and starting to roll response. Like I can understand just doing something quick to get the hell, get some impact. Yeah, but to get the it, headline, right? And, and this yeah. wasn't a bank though, to be clear. This was a telco that provided services okay, to, right, the, to the Russian yeah. Central Bank. But yeah, it's, yeah. It, anyway, we've, we've, we've said it. 32 hours, yes. like actually surprising. Uh, on we go to the next story. So this next one, actually, uh, the Wall Street Journal, look, everyone has it. The, the ODNI in the United States, the um, Office of the Director of National Intelligence has declassified a report that was prepared for it about the US intelligence community's purchasing of commercially available information, right? So we've seen a steady drumbeat of news stories over the last few years from people like Joe, Joe Cox deserves a call out here because he's been uh, writing about this an awful lot. And, uh, you know, certainly the, the ODNI looked into it and decided, yes, this is worthy of public, public discussion and, and has declassified the report. It is much as you expect, right? It confirms a lot of the stuff that we've seen reported publicly. I think there's a number of interesting aspects to this, right? So Tom Uren, our colleague who uh, writes our Seriously Risky Business newsletter, he's working on this for tomorrow. And he made a really good point, right? Which is that even if you tidy up the use of this sort of stuff by the US intelligence community and US law enforcement, right, at a federal level, because state and local is going to be really hard, you're still going to be left with problems. So I asked him to, to just give us a clip on that. And here's what he said. A strict focus on the IC will help clean up the IC, but I think that's actually the least of your problems because you can do that. You can set policies. There's a clear hierarchy. The DNI is in control. 
Congress controls the purse, purse strings. They'll clean this up over time. I think domestic law enforcement is actually much more worrying because they have you know, the exact same access to this data. They can buy it just as easily as the IC can. And the, the federal levers to control domestic law enforcement are just much harder because there's so many different police forces in the US. Oversight is comparatively weak. And I think that's a real problem. And finally, of course, you can't constrain foreign intelligence collection. They'll buy this data. They probably are buying this data and making a huge amount of use of it. I think the way to tackle this is to look at the data privacy laws. It just shouldn't be possible to collect this kind of super intrusive data that can basically replicate uh, an intelligence collection machine <laughs> and, and just sell it to whoever, whoever wants it. That's my takeaway message. So that was Tom Uren there, our colleague. He works full-time uh, with us doing Seriously Risky Business, which you can uh, find at risky.biz slash subscribe. If you're not subscribed to that, it's really one of the best cybersecurity newsletters that looks at a lot of these sort of government and, and, and intelligence topics. It, it, it really is terrific. But, you know, he makes a really good point, and he's made it previously in other columns that he's written, which is that we just need to nuke the, you know, forget about regulating the sale of this stuff. We need to regulate the collection of this stuff. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Like the root cause is that so much data is available for purchase and yeah, intelligence services can buy it foreign and domestic and so can everybody else. Someone who wants to dox people, someone who wants to, you know, collect data and use it in ways that it wasn't intended for. And normally this gets kind of hand waved as, oh well, it's anonymized data and, and you know, there's a bunch of uh, you know, safeguards. Well, the, that are the, the ODNI in place, report points but, out that they can de anonymize this stuff, yes, right? The so, government and, 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 knows that they can do that. Yes, exactly. And, and so do other people. Yeah. And I think the, you know, solving this in the root, which is, you know, good quality privacy regulation in the United States and you know, in other places in the world, we have different privacy laws, but, you know, we have the same sort of problems of tech companies and ad networks and so on, you know, selling this data and like the level of detail you can get, you know, with good quality data being collected is, as Tom says, you know, better in some cases than what you get with intelligence apparatus going and rolling on them. So, you know, it's pretty it's pretty terrifying. Um, mm. And solving it at root, I think, is the best approach, yes. Yeah, yeah. So I've linked through also to something Tom wrote two years ago uh, for us, which was about a priest in the United States who got outed as gay via uh, data that was obtained by some Christian uh, Substack publication or whatever. And it's, you know, it's a pretty... Um, Interesting read. I think it was one of the first bits of media that really pointed out that this is going to be a problem when it comes to foreign intelligence services using this type of data. And, you know, that example of the priest was just given as a really good one. But, uh, you know, I've, I've also been reminded of a conversation I had around the time of the Snowden disclosures. So I was at the Black Hat that was immediately after that. And I did bump into a friend of mine who uh, held a senior position in the intelligence community, um, which I won't describe the agency or the position for obvious reasons. But, you know, I, I at that point, the Snowden stuff was still really fresh. And I'm like, mate, you know, what the hell are you guys doing? And he said, well, don't believe everything that you read. You know, the oversight's probably a lot better than you, uh, than, than certainly uh, our mate Edward is um, suggesting. And, uh, you know, he said there's a lot of bad info out there. But he also said something really interesting, which is that, like, if you want to be worried about your privacy, he's like, if, you, if people knew how much data a company like Google and Facebook were collecting on people... Uh, you know, if and he said, if we had ten percent of their insight, it would be a game changer for us, right? So the a lot of the the most intrusive data has been held 
by private companies for a long time or commercial commercial entities, I, I should say, rather than private companies because they're public companies. Um, but I think what's changed, and, and the ODNI report actually does mention this because I skimmed it earlier. You know, the that data doesn't just belong to the major tech firms anymore. You know, we've got this entire ecosystem of shady SDKs that support, you know, data broking and, and ad placements and whatever. And you can just buy this stuff now. Like Google's not going to sell you this sort of data on its users, but we've got this whole shady ecosystem that sprung up around it. And it, yeah, we need to look at the root cause. I agree with Tom. Yeah, I'm absolutely on board for that as well. Like when you see the amount of location data and really detailed stuff that comes out of, as you say, like SDKs for putting advertising mobile apps, like it's pretty scary. And I know like some of the reporting from Joe Cox et al about the quality of that data and what you can do is, yeah, really sobering. And we should have good quality privacy law, but yeah. That's a a long-term Well, when we say we, we mean America should. Uh, Yeah, so I've linked through to two write-ups on that one, one from the Wall Street Journal. And Del Cameron, uh, it must be said, did a great job of writing this up for Wired. Um, Tom also had some interesting stuff to say about how, like, it looks like in this case, the examples that are cited in the ODNI report look kind of reasonable uh, as well and not all that scary, but also that that's not the point, right? Um, You know, we should not be... um, uh, just saying, oh, well, it's okay because what they're doing seems all right. Like we need, need you know, reform, definitely need reform. Now, speaking of reform, uh, Section 702, the, the surveillance power, uh, as everybody knows, it's coming up for renewal. And, you know, given that the FBI was sort of caught doing silly things with it, it's kind of forced, um, you know, various parts of the US government to actually come out and be a little bit more open about what sort of stuff they use 702 for so that they can sell its renewal as a positive thing. And we got to learn some interesting things because of this, Adam. Yeah, they've got some uh, actual examples of things that they used 702 powers for. Uh, There's some examples relating to, say, Colonial Pipeline, uh, the breach of that, um, which is, you know, that's kind of, we don't often see the insides of these investigations because they're you know not our business so much but seeing it tied to that specific capability i think you know that it's a good example and of course it's a very compelling one when they're trying to convince congress people yeah yeah i mean to be able to say and they specifically say that they used 702 authorities to identify the people behind the colonial uh, pipeline attack and actually retrieve the ransom uh so you know take that bad internet people yeah so it's a great example and of course you know we're Considering how much it gets used, it would be nice to see you know a whole bunch more. But they they have to pick a couple that are palatable um, for releasing in the audience and so on. But they you know they give some others about you know tracking uh, drug traffickers, for example. Um, you know the fentanyl situation in the United States obviously is one that's relevant to many of its elected authorities. That's a good one they they put in there as well. But you know this conversation is just really complicated. The like, what do we do with 702? You know, is it going to get, it's probably going to get reauthorized. Well, it's going to get reauthorized. Can... I mean, come on, that's going to happen. But, yes. you know, we've got another story here from Martin Matashak, which kind of suggests that, um, you know, they're dragging the chain on some of the reforms that various panels and whatever are, are recommending because that FBI stuff was not ideal, right? Yes. So, <laughs> and, and it's kind of heading the direction that we hoped it would, which means that there will be some reform here, but apparently, like, it's just not going that quick and, like, it's, it's going to come down to the wire again, right? Yeah, and the representative, deputy director of the FBI uh, was at one of the committee hearings and was basically saying, like, why don't you guys mandate some of the policy changes that we've made, for example, to try and reduce misuse of 702 data by FBI investigators? 
Um, and that's, you know, they had some numbers that say, you know, the number of queries have dropped, you know, after they've made some policy changes, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, but and it like, doesn't matter, right? Like, because even if you drop, even if you drop it by 80%, it's like which queries have gone. Anyway, I think the FBI has largely, you know, fixed this, but that, you know, you're not just going to take their word for it after what we've that's, seen. That seems to be the thought from the, you know, various senators, right? Why yeah. should we trust the FBI to self-police when they have shown that they haven't in the past? And yeah, it's fair enough. Question. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah. honestly, fair enough. Um, anyway, let's move. Oh, my favorite story of the week. Absolutely. When I first saw this, I first saw this in Catalan's coverage. Uh, I think Monday when I was editing a, um, uh, one of his news, uh, uh, news podcast scripts. And yeah, the people, the people who did Mount Gox, like, so the, the, the hack of the Mount Gox exchange, when was that 2010 to 2013? Um, so the hack of the Mount Gox exchange has been one of those big internet mysteries for a long time. Cause a lot of people, thought that the guy who was running the exchange, they were Japanese uh, uh, Bitcoin exchange, an early one. And a lot of people thought that the guy who was running the exchange had sort of siphoned off the money. But what looks like happened, like the DOJ has now charged two Russian guys with doing this, uh, with doing pulling off this caper. They stole 647,000 Bitcoins over an extended period from Mt. Gox. They sold some of it to a shady exchange that did a wire transfer for millions of dollars in cash. And then they founded BTCE, which was a really shady uh, cryptocurrency exchange that laundered a bunch of money. So they took their crime coins and then just did more crime-related Bitcoin stuff with it. Uh, <laughs> but I'm just, you know, apparently these charges were were laid in 2019. They're just being unsealed now. But for me, this is like, you know, like they found Jimmy Hoffa's corpse or it's, a, you know, proof of Bigfoot or something. Like it's just, <laughs> yeah. they've solved this mystery for us. Yeah, and for, you know, for the children listening who weren't born when Mount Gox was a thing, um, yeah, it's funny seeing a story come back after, you know, so many years and now we do get some, a little bit of closure, I suppose, about exactly what happened. But I do love the idea that they robbed Mount Gox and then set up another competing exchange that would do money laundering to launder the proceeds. Yeah, and so I was like wondering was- how you launder money with other money that people are trying to launder like how does that work you know what i mean well, i guess like i would have thought you you'd use... start a legitimate exchange and try to launder your stuff in with the legit you know not do a shady one where everything <laughs> going into it is bad <laughs> laundering with other people's laundry like I, it's kind of genius in a way but <laughs> um well apparently but yeah, not because they just got indicted well, but you know well ex- exactly yes the doj filed charges in 2019 against uh, alexei bilyuchenko and alexander Werner, who as the the two russians are accused of doing this and uh, the former was a biz partner with the guy who started bdce who got picked up in greece i think a few years back now and got extradited to the u.s so yeah, it's a bad time to be a mid two thousands Bitcoin criminal, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. the wheels of justice turn slowly, but they do turn. It turns out. Yeah, and you remember we were saying like a lot of historical blockchain crimes are going to get punished, right? And this yes. is just one yeah, more exactly. of these. But yeah, Internet Bigfoot captured. Uh, well, not captured. <laughs> Internet Bigfoot indicted. Yes, uh, I got a photo of Internet Bigfoot. <laughs> now, really funny. We got two headlines in front of us. We've mm-hmm. got one from uh, Darina Antonik Antonuk uh, at the record which says North Korean hacking group Lazarus linked to $35 million cryptocurrency heist. Uh, that's from June 8th. And then we've got this next headline from June 14th, which is North Korean hackers stole $100 million in recent cryptocurrency heist, <laughs> which is the same that's- hack. So we spoke about this one briefly last week and someone actually, uh, this is the atomic wallet thing where I said that they'd confirmed that they'd had a bad time 
Someone wrote to me and pointed out that they didn't actually confirm it. They just said they were aware of reports. But it looks like <laughs> it looks like it's confirmed now. And something like five thousand five hundred digital wallets were hit uh, by the North Koreans, and they drained them. Do we know how yet? Uh, so we haven't seen specifics, but uh, Atomic Wallet has had some flaws in the past, and obviously the Lazarus are pretty good at looking at crypto stuff as whole whole ecosystem like looking at the web apps looking at the people looking at the uh, you know company systems around it so yeah we're not 100 percent sure if it was like straight up crypto hacks or whether it was a little more holistic but either way 35 million or 100 million 100 maybe that's million. Uh, yeah. it was 35 now it's 100 so yeah maybe that's just accounting for the cryptocurrency fluctuations maybe both headlines are true <laughs> maybe who knows who knows um, what else have we got? Uh, so just wanted to quickly mention this one. An Illinois hospital uh, is closing. And one of the reasons they've cited for closing is they got ransomware and that prevented them from being able to uh, claim money from insurance, uh, health insurance firms. And it just put them under. They're, they're done. They're closing. And it's a, I think it's a regional hospital. And yeah, this is going to cause real problems for the community there. Kevin Collier wrote this one up for NBC. And I've, you know, I've spoken to Kevin about the way that he approaches covering ransomware and he will only cover something these days if it is something, you know, new or serious or whatever because, you know, there's just too many ransomware attacks. He can't yes, write yeah. them up anymore, but I can certainly see why he chose to cover this. It's really depressing. Yeah, it is really sad to hear and, uh, you know, hospitals are such, you know, they're vulnerable in themselves, but also they serve vulnerable people. So it's kind of like double victimization um, and, yeah, hard reading um, and just kind of rough because of the problems in healthcare are so difficult to solve. And we're going to just uh, end here, Adam, with a link to an interview with the CEO of LastPass that's been published on Cybersecurity Dive. I found this pretty interesting, right? Because like they acknowledge mistakes were made, right? And particularly, I thought the stuff around communications was interesting because they said what we're trying to do is develop complete pictures and then do periodic updates where what they should have done was a more constant flow of information and talking about stuff as they sort of discovered it. Um, just an like they did make mistakes, uh, but I think this is an interesting sort of post-mortem from the CEO's perspective about what they did wrong. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting uh, as well because, you know, seeing the insides of the decision-making and then also understanding what they took away from it, like what the, the things that they learnt from the process were, is just really useful because we don't often see that. Um, and, you know, I know anecdotally plenty of people have been like, oh, LastPass got hacked and I'm not going to use them anymore, which... They're the ones you, you know, want to use. <laughs> well, exactly right. It's the ones that have done a good job of responding to such an incident and turned out that it wasn't catastrophic in the end anyway. Yeah. Like the So seeing the insights of what went on, I think is just really useful and... Well, and they say, they say there's no evidence of follow-on attacks, right? And, and yes. on, on the users as a result of this. And they also point out their renewal hit uh, their renewal rate took an 8% hit, but they expect that it's going to recover. They've got some really good people over there. I spoke to a couple of their people when I, um, you know, made my, my oopsie on um, su suggesting that this was North Korea. It still could be, uh, but it certainly was an oopsie and I shouldn't have said it. But I did wind up talking to a bunch of their people and like Chris Hoff is over there as well. Like they got, they got top-notch security people. Which you'd certainly hope so, given you know, given the role that they play and the service mm. that they provide. Um, and I just you know, I compare it to some of the other vendor responses to breaches and incidents, and like it's just really refreshing to get you know this kind of insight and you know to hear it from the horse's mouth. Uh, so I think yeah, totally worth reading. Well, mate, that's it for this week's news. Uh, thank you so much for joining me to uh, talk through all of that. A pleasure as always, my friend. And uh, we'll do it again next week, and then we're actually off air for a couple of weeks after next week's show.
Excellent. We can plan some terrible things to happen. I'm looking forward to it very yeah. much. See you later. That was CyberCX's Adam Boileau there with a look at the week's security news. Uh, we're going to chat now with Chris Rothy. He is the co-founder of Red Canary and is its CTO. And uh, he's joining me to talk about how managed detection and response firms like Red Canary are now helping customers monitor their cloud infrastructure. So as you'll hear, when I recorded this interview, I was actually staying at a friend's house in uh, Melbourne who happens to be an Azure cloud infrastructure guy. So I wound up discussing this interview after I recorded it with him. And essentially, yeah, he told me the same thing that Chris, uh, Chris did and you're about to hear, which is that out-of-the-box signals from services like Azure are actually pretty good these days, right? So you can plug an MDR provider into this telemetry and they can actually tell you useful things. Anyway, here's Chris Rothy talking about how MDR companies are tackling cloud infrastructure monitoring and response. If you think about MDR, what's the, what are the core features of MDR that inform what telemetry you need? Um, and so from our perspective, there's sort of five main things. There's 24 by 7, 365 expert investigation of any potential threat. There's advanced threat detection. Detection engineering would be another term for that that you need to apply to the right data sources. There's having a great global threat intelligence team that's able to collect different pieces of intelligence and bring them to bear in your detection engineering pipeline. There's threat hunting continuously to apply new intel to old data. And then the response side, the R side, is proactive response and remediation, right? Being able to take action on threats and shut them down. So if you accept that as sort of the, the core, what is MDR in order to deliver the outcomes that, that companies need, which is detecting threats and shutting them down before they cause damage, uh, then the question starts to be, what types of data do you need to do that job in different environments? For endpoints, and you know, largely for the last decade, that's where most of the action was. It's where the, the most uh, threat actors were landing. The best source we ever found for that was endpoint detection response data. That mm. telemetry that telling you every process, what every process did, uh, is the perfect set of data um, to, to do detection engineering on top of and, and find those threats in a really robust behavior analytic type way. I think I think when, uh, the words that describe it best are execution events. I always yeah. like that. It's just execution events. That's it. And look at them. Yeah, find yeah, yeah. the find the funny ones. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and that is like a core to our, our view of the world is you don't want to convict it. You're just looking for things that are interesting that need a human to look at them. Hmm. Because products and tools can convict things, right? If we could write perfect analytics that say that's definitely bad, then you don't need a security team and you don't need a, an MDR, right? It's that gray space where, hey, this thing looks like normal user behavior, but it's actually an adversary doing doing it. That's that's where you need, that's where MDR really is critical. Um so as you go beyond the endpoint and you say, hey, uh, now we have, a, you know, we have users that are using mostly SaaS tools, and so the identity is sort of the center of their world. You have cloud infrastructure uh, where maybe EDR is in place on the workloads, but you also have this cloud control plane with all these different service primitives that you can use. What are the right telemetry sources in those environments? Um, and so through our last couple years of, of learning and growing in those areas, we've sort of zeroed in on in the cloud space. It's really the cloud uh, API telemetry, right? So the in the AWS world, that would be CloudTrail. And similar to the EDR analogy, it's everything everyone did to the cloud control plane. Every resource they created, every resource they stopped, every security group they modified, that's what's in that telemetry, right? And ultimately, that's the, the same level of detail that you need in order to then 
build detection analytics on top of it. Similar in the identity space, like from the Octas of the world, Azure AD, getting that fine-grained login telemetry. Um, and then apply that into the email and productivity space when we're talking O365 and the unified audit log and, and all that kind of stuff. Those are those are the prime you know telemetry sources in sort of the modern conglomerated IT world. You know, is one of the reasons that this wasn't really possible earlier and is possible now because everybody through the first decade of cloud had a had a different approach, right? So every cloud environment was just such a snowflake that trying to get you know, some managed detection response company to look at the logs and even know what was going on was basically impossible. Whereas now, you know, it seems like there are more standard approaches to how people spin up these cloud environments. So, you know, the the badness kind of looks a little bit more uniform. Am I making sense yeah. here? Like, is that something that's happening? Yeah, or? and, and I, think there, I think there's a couple ways to look at it. And um, one is sort of a adversary's view of it. And another would be, what are the tools that are actually available view of it? So from an adversary's point of view, when it was so easy to compromise endpoints because everyone would click the link, why would I mess around trying to break into, you know, something in a, in a cloud service provider? You know, um, it's, it's sort of like an analogy would be like, if I'm a sales rep who's, you know, I've got my tactics of send cold email or, you know, send packages in the mail and I get a you know way better response rate on one versus the other. Let me just go with what works. Let me play the hits, right? And so that was sort of the temporal angle of it, which is like, why, if I'm an adversary, why bother trying to attack a cloud infrastructure when I can just get access to to endpoints and do my thing from there and and take advantage of it by delivering ransomware or, or whatever whatever else they were using to monetize. So that's one angle of it. The other is, to your point, the cloud uh, platforms, the the cloud control planes, the cloud service providers have all sort of matured to, uh, and really talking about the big three here, AWS, GCP, Azure, have all matured to have a relatively similar portfolio of, uh, of uh, services, right? There's nuances, there's differences between yeah, them. Yeah, but it's not, but it's, not speaking, like it, it's not like it was, right? Because people forget that AWS, yeah. you know, 10, 15 years ago looked like what DigitalOcean looks like now, right? Like it was yeah. just, it's yeah, like, yeah, 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 you can run your own Linux machines on a hypervisor and there was no you know, telemetry right. source. So there was no standard way to do things either yeah. because it was really like, yeah. just bring your own VMs and, and you can run them in the cloud. But that's not, that's not for sure. Yeah. Now, right. Yeah. And, and I think the other, you know, evolution over time is, uh, is the shared responsibility model that exists with the cloud service providers now. Um, and if you've never seen that, like the, the concept is there's effectively an above the line and a below the line. And all the things below the line are effectively the, the cloud uh, service provider's responsibility. So when you think about that from if you're mapping your traditional on-prem security thinking to a cloud environment and part of, your, you know, how many socks have I been in where somebody's like, you know, one of my dreams is to take our badge reader data and correlate it with, you know, event logins to, to computers and stuff like that. This stuff's gone, man. There's no physical security. Like that's all below the line. That's, that's out of your purview. Um, and so where that, so that's great. That means from a security perspective, there's lots of good things of not having to worry about that, uh, as, as a user of the cloud, maybe the negative of it is everything that's above the line is your responsibility. Yeah. And that in some cases is stuff that you've never had to think about before, right? Because it, it wasn't uh, part of the universe when you were in an on-prem uh, data center type environment. So I think that's that's the other angle of it is as that shared security or shared responsibility model has matured, security teams are realizing how much they have to take on in terms of securing things uh, above the line. 
Um, and that's, that's where detection and response starts to apply where it's like, oh, wow, now that we have visibility, now to your point that we have this common set of like uh, activity telemetry that's coming out from the different CSPs, now we got to do something with it, right? Otherwise, we're, we're negligent in finding those, uh, those attacks. Yeah, I mean, you know, some of the early approaches around cloud-based stuff was like you'd shim in a network sensor, right? And sort of plumb mm-hmm. things together. So you would have basically like a network IDS in your cloud yep. instance. And then maybe you'd do some endpoint telemetry. Uh, you know, if you're running a bunch of Linux things, you'd throw in some sort of EDR-like uh, security agent to send logs back. But that's not really what we're doing anymore, is it? I mean, they, that's well, still a part of it. Yeah, yeah. The way, the way we like to categorize it is you've got the MDR in our world, MDR for the cloud control plane. So you need to detect threats in the control plane. Again, use this analogy of the control plane is like an OS, like, yeah, a, yeah, like yeah. a computer. But I guess right? that's what I'm getting at. That's the new part, right? So if you right. look at like, and we've said this on the show too, that something like AWS is essentially like a server operating system now. Like it, yeah. is, it is an OS. Yeah, absolutely. So that there's that piece. And then there's, you know, MDR for the cloud instances. Those have some different flavors now with containerization and, and uh, serverless functions and things like that that aren't, you know, those aren't uh, like on-prem native. There's no mindset of how do we monitor a serverless function. So those yeah. are new new things that we have to have to figure out and figure out what it means to detect threats to them. Yeah. So, I mean, how are people handling, you know, serverless, right? Because it's, it's, it's not super, super common. Um, yeah. I mean, as you know, I'll just tell the audience I'm traveling at the moment. I'm in Melbourne. I'm staying at a friend's house. Uh, this friend happened to have developed, you know, serverless Azure apps, uh, I think, some years ago, right? Had a Greenfields opportunity to do some development, actually did these, these serverless apps. And it's, it was incredible uh, what he was able to spin up in an incredibly short period of time using serverless. But then you think, okay, well, how do you get insight into what it's doing? I mean, how do you get insight into what it's doing? Like, how are people doing that? Do you have to basically build your own logging in service, serverless apps? Or do the cloud providers, you know, basically extract some generic telemetry uh, for you? Yeah. And I think to follow to add on to your question, what's actually relevant? What yes. what does it mean to compromise a, a serverless application? Right, if if the thing just spins up in response to an API request, does its job, and then shuts down, what is the actual vector there? Right. So you have like traditional things like you know web application attacks, SQL injection. If if what your serverless app is doing is is serving a web page or whatever, and so you know the database that probably underlies your serverless application um, needs to be protected from that standpoint. So any, any app you're building serverless needs to, uh, you know, implement the same types of safeguards on the front end of it to make sure you're not, not vulnerable to those types of attacks. Um, but in terms of like what we think of as like a compromise, really to compromise something serverless like that, you got to get in through the control plane and inject, inject code. And so that comes back to you know, what are we monitoring for there, right? Monitoring for uh, changes to those applications that maybe were made outside of the CICD pipeline. Um, they were hand-poked in there, you know, by who or by some API call. I mean, you keep coming back to the same thing, right? Which, uh, yeah. which makes a lot of sense, which is from an MDR perspective, the one generic like info source that you can make best use of is going to be that control plane logging, right? Yeah. And that's something yeah. that you could just plug in. doesn't matter how diverse the environments are that you're having to monitor. Right. There's going to be some stuff that just sticks out like a sore thumb. I mean, that's, that's essentially yeah. what you're saying here, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's not a once, it's not, um, it's not everything, right? Like as always in security, it's part of a solution. You know, you, 
need also what we would historically call a CSPM, Cloud Security Posture Manage, uh, Management thing like a whiz, like a lace work to look at those, uh, the configuration changes, help yeah. highlight vulnerability type, type activity, um, which is another kind of interesting thing I think about cloud security is the definition of a threat seems to move a little bit more to the left. Like yes, absolutely. Vulnerabilities are, are um, you know, more like threats than in like a, you know, uh, like how many vulnerabilities are on your laptop at any given time, right? Yeah. Probably lots. And it's like, so what? They're not accessible. There's nothing anyone could do with them. In the cloud, you sort of can't have that same attitude. <laughs> no. So of your customers, right? Uh, like what sort of percentage of them have you doing this? Because I'd imagine that, you know, the market has only recently kind of wrapped its head around the idea that MDR can be trusted, right? Like that's new. Yeah. And I'm guessing that this is a small but growing uh, business line for you. Is that about right? Yeah, correct. And it's really about the profile of, of the company. You know, uh, a lot of especially cloud native type companies who never had a, a uh, on-prem infrastructure that they lifted into the cloud. Those are sort of the early adopters in, in this space. You know, yeah, maybe right. we were monitoring their corporate environments and they were the ones who were asking us, hey, can we apply some of that similar stuff to well, our Well, the, the people who did lift and shift would have been the ones who did the network sensors in the cloud exactly. and who plumbed yeah. in the like EDR-like telemetry and yeah. they have it feeding back to their SOC or their existing way of doing monitoring, right? Like, yeah, So that, that's, that's right. why I'm curious about who's who's embracing this. And it, it makes sense that it's the cloud first, you know, new, yeah. new hot young things. Yeah. Well, and think about the profile of those companies from just like things to monitor. They've got, let's say... I don't know, let's pick a, a company like Red Canary. We've got, you know, somewhere between 500 and 1,000 employees or something like that. We've got thousands of machines running in AWS at any given time, scaling up, scaling down, databases, data storage, pipelines, like all this stuff all the time. It's a much bigger environment than our, our user population, right? That's a typical of like a SaaS company or, or a cloud native company. So, um, so those are the, the early adopters in terms of MDR for cloud uh, but as more and more people get out of the on-prem infrastructure business, we expect it to, to grow there. All right. Well, Chris Rothy, thank you so much for joining us uh, on the show to talk through all of that. And, uh, you know, let's see where all this goes. Thanks, Patrick. Appreciate you having me. That was Chris Rothy there from Red Canary. Big thanks to him for that. And big thanks to Red Canary for being a Risky Business sponsor. And that is it for this week's show. I'll be back tomorrow with another edition of the Seriously Risky Business podcast with Tom Uren in the Risky Business News RSS feed. Uh, but until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.